everybody. Welcome to the Voxology Podcast. Mike Erie, Tim Stafford. Here we are. And ladies and gentlemen, I have news for you. We Ooh. just recorded the first episode <laughs> and maybe the only episode of something we're calling Voxology Radio. That's right. Our technical wizard, Tim Stafford, figured out how to create playlists on Spotify that we can talk between. That's right. And so um, we, we hold in common a favorite band. And yeah. so our first episode dropping later this week is on our, fa- our six favorite songs from Pearl Jam. Yeah. With witty anecdotes. That's right, with, witty. Uh, behind the scenes, never before made public stories. <laughs> um, it is... It's a masterpiece. Let's just put it that way. But if you see some random um, <laughs> episode showing up on your feeds, that's Although what's going be, on. I don't know how. I have no idea how it will show up because it will only be on Spotify. Oh, it's only. It's ooh, a, that's good to know. Yeah, it's a Spotify feature because it uses music, the actual music from Spotify. So if you don't have Spotify, you can just imagine what it sounds like. Yeah. But I don't know. I don't know if it'll show up, and I have no idea how it will show up. Okay, so this is experiments, so we'll guys. This is experiments. Easter egg, maybe an Easter egg hunt. So this is very exciting um, here at the uh, Voxology headquarters. We are very excited about this, <laughs> and we are we are simply, um, and and the way we figure it, there might be ten listeners of this thing, um, counting the two of us, and that that's just fine. Um, cause we'll listen. Absolutely. Uh, although, you know, you might want to fast forward through the talking. Um, I don't know. totally, totally understand that. That might be the best part. Well, maybe, um, you wait till you hear Tim sing acapella, um, <laughs> the guitar solo by Eddie Van Halen called eruption. Um, he does that in between songs and it's incredible. Right. Um, it sounds a little like yodeling, but you know, it's fine. Speaking <laughs> of singing, is. speaking of singing, I have a video on my phone where, um, that I wish I could show the world. I got an email from Seth's teacher yesterday saying, Hey, we have something called the Grove games. His school is called Poplar Grove. They have the Grove games and Seth is singing the national anthem. I think, and I asked Seth, I'm like, are you singing by yourself or with the choir? He's like, the choir. So I roll in. I'm thinking it's a choir. It's not a choir. This is actually a whole school assembly where all of the kids from the special education classes have some role. You know, one of them does the Pledge of Allegiance. One of them races a torch around the gym. Seth Erie gets up. And sings the national anthem by himself solo in front the of the entire thing? school. The whole thing. Wow. And then, and so, the, I mean, the place goes nuts. Then, and I didn't know any of this. He's participating in the softball throw, in uh, biking and running. It's just, it's, it's great. The whole school's cheering all of these kids on. Uh, but then he has a closing number called Never Give Up. And it, he's got an and he's got an accompanying track. He's got a track accompanying him, but he sings the whole three minute and thirty second song. 
and at one point yells into the microphone, everybody sing. And he starts waving his hand <laughs> like you would at a concert. And so the whole school is standing and waving their hands. Um, and, um, and Seth gets done and does some sort of jump maneuver flip like a rock star would and just basks in the applause of his classmates. And it is so... You didn't know about this? I just thought I thought he was singing the national anthem with the choir. That's the, all I thought the other was happening. Song that he sang like no. he wasn't practicing it at home. It was like a no idea, that no all idea. At school, and so yes, it was it That's was great. quite a morning in the Erie household. I just if I mean the video, I, I wish there were just a way to post it so that you know only good people can see it. Um, mm. It is the funniest, greatest. One of his teachers came up and was just like, if I had it had an ounce of the confidence that he has, I mean, he just went <laughs> nuts in front of everybody. That's amazing. Oh, it was so fun, Timothy. It was so fun. So maybe we'll have a Seth Erie radio made up of uh, different Seth songs. There's a playlist yeah. I, can, I can get behind. Timothy, we've got some stuff today. Yeah. I want to thank Dan for um, his generosity on Patreon. We're grateful uh, to you for that. We're grateful for our whole community um, who support the podcast. We're grateful for you for listening and, and interacting with us. I mean, it's just, uh, as we say all the time, it's such a privilege to get to do what we do. Last episode, um, with fear and trembling a little bit, we <laughs> sort of stepped into some non-well thought out <clears throat> kind of reactions to something that was going on in culture and we just didn't you know I, i'd prefer to have everything you know thought through and brilliant but instead i think the two of us were just sort of wondering how in the world do we react and follow jesus in the midst of all of this um abortion news and um we received some great not shocking great 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 um Feedback, questions, this one, this woman gave us permission to read this in the email and uh, just thought, man, this is, this is worth reading. Uh, and it's long, but it's really powerful. I grew up in a very conservative evangelical world and have been pro-life my entire life. In high school, my favorite sweatshirt was one with the phrase, abortion is homicide emblazoned across it in large black and white letters. My thinking about abortion was just as nuanced as the lettering on my sweatshirt, utterly black and white. Abortion was killing, killing is wrong. God wants us to respect his sovereignty and those who he has made in his image. Therefore, abortion was wrong and never okay. And I never thought much more deeply than that. However, two events in the last 10 years have got me thinking in more nuanced ways about the intersection of theology and abortion. The first incident happened in college at a Christian university. I was required for a class assignment to go to the local state university, stand in front of huge banners depicting graphic bloody photos of aborted children and was expected to Jeez. proselytize the gospel of the pro-life cause. I Holy moly. I was incredibly uncomfortable with the whole event, yes, and ended up spending the day with some fellow classmates who also questioned the wisdom of the exercise. We ended up hanging out with a feminist campus club that had shown up to protest our demonstration. Besides my many qualms about the nature and manner of the demonstration, I had some serious questions about my professor's motivation for the assignment. Mainly, 
His reason for the assignment in the first place, he believed that all who die without making a decision to follow Christ, including unborn babies, are destined to he- for hell. Wow. This seemed unfathomable to me. It stands completely against the character of the God I know in Scripture. That's brutal. Wow. Fast forward 10 years, I'm now the mom of two boys. I have some serious health complications that require a number of medications that cause extreme and severe defects in children if taken while pregnant. I have always used the utmost caution to ensure that I only got pregnant intentionally when those medications were safely out of my system. Through a series of unintended and accidental events, I became pregnant in the fall of 2019 and my world changed overnight. I knew if my child lived beyond the womb at all, it would be born without limbs, possibly without a functioning mouth, and would die soon after birth after intense and severe suffering. Man. Oof, I can't even imagine. Can't even imagine. The circumstance forced me to wrestle with questions I'd never truly faced. What happens to babies who are miscarried and aborted? Do they indeed go to hell like my professor believed? Where was God in this situation? Would a God of love really do that? What did God want of me? What did it mean to be a good and wise mother to this particular child? What does respect for life look like in this circumstance? What does it mean to honor the Imago Dei and the child? Could God possibly condone or make room for abortion in my case? Could he forgive me if I did? After much agonizing and prayer, I came to the conclusion that the most loving decision I could make as this child's mother was to prevent as much suffering as possible. I ended up entrusting their soul to God and had an early term medical abortion. Unfortunately, because of the conservative viewpoints of our community and family, we've only shared the true details with a select, understanding few. To the general public, we say we had a miscarriage. I often wonder how much more peace I would have had about my abortion if the theology of the church made room for it. Wow. I know, I know. Two more paragraphs. I mean, it's so worth telling this sister story. Ever since... I have not stopped thinking about how our theology does and should inform our views on abortion. I would love to know what you guys think about this. What is compassionate, Christ-centered abortion policy? I no longer believe it is black and white uh, in which we should never, ever allow abortion, but I'm not sure, I'm entirely sure when it should be permissible either. How do we navigate this quest as people who believe in the sovereignty of God and his love and compassion and the free will and wisdom from the spirit that he has endowed with doubt us to make decisions. Um, if I had to do it over again, I would make the same decision, but where do we draw the boundaries when it comes to abortion for life and death reasons for the health of the mother or the baby? Should we consider financial or social stability? How about parenting capacity for children uh, that fa- that families already have? What about rape and incest? Does God have anything ever to say about these questions? How do we determine which situations God might accommodate abortion and which he would never tolerate? If we fall on the absolute side of the pro-life position, what does that say about our theology? If we fall on the most permissive side of the pro-choice stance, what does that say about our theology? And most importantly, how do we make these decisions not only for ourselves, but how do we walk with others who find themselves in these circumstances? I know this was a lengthy email, but I hope it prompts some discussion. Oof. First of all, um, we'll we'll call you Jennifer. First of all, Jennifer, thank you so much for trusting us with this. Um, I, I I we I read it when it first came in and and just had to sit in it. 
yeah. for a little bit because um, of of how intense that must have been for you. I, I um, with Seth, there was a possibility that he had uh, tris- trisomy eighteen, right. which meant he would not have been viable outside of the womb, or trisomy twenty one, which is Down syndrome. We did not have to face. Even then, we were encouraged to to have an abortion. Um, but I cannot imagine the situation that you were in. That's as close as I can come in my imaginative world to even beginning to appreciate how complicated and gut wrenching that must have been for you. So I'm I'm just so sorry. I'm just so sorry you were put in that situation, and I'm so sorry you had to make a decision either way that was going to be painful. So there's nothing in my experience that can um, kind of relate to that. So here's kind of where I'm at with it. I mean, as we said last episode, I, um, I do think abortion um, in, I, I, guess, I, I guess here's the way I'd want to say it. The focus in my mind should be on alleviating the circumstances that make it an attractive option to sure. begin with. Um, like we can, like we can punish racist language, like we're beginning, you know, or have uh, in our culture, but that does not do anything about the racist attitudes of people's hearts. Um, and so I feel like, yes, we can outlaw a certain medical procedure, but that doesn't deal with why that medical procedure is, um, thought about as an option in the first place. And so I just, I, I wish the energy that we had towards legislation, I think you said this last episode, would go to, you know, um, yeah. child care, universal child care, um, you know, inexpensive uh, birthing, um, a, a, um, a better foster or adoptive care system that takes care of um, unwanted children, um, you know, more diligently. I mean, those sorts of like background conditions. In your case, my sister, I mean, I, I think, I think um, without knowing at all the nuances of, this, of the circumstances, I certainly uh, can understand completely why you'd make the choice that you did. Absolutely. And so do I, I think that um, God makes room uh, for that? Oh, absolutely. I think, I think he even makes room for the most hard-hearted person who sees abortion just as birth control. Um, but does God weep with those who weep in the sense, in the sense of uh, extreme poverty or lack of access to health care or rape? In, I mean, if, absolutely. Absolutely. I have no idea when that clump of cells becomes an, uh, an image bearer. My Catholic brothers and sisters have argued conception. I just don't know. I, I don't know. So I do think there are several things we have to balance, and, I, and I've never heard a good uh, uh, policy for how to balance them outside of a caring community. The, the interests of the mother um, the interests and welfare of the child and the welfare of the mother, and then the, uh, the community and how abortion affects the community, how b- bringing the child into the world affects the community. I just think there, there, it's a far bigger issue than just outlawing 
a medical yep. procedure. And I just hate that the focus has been on the symptom and not the root. And so your story just reminds me of how complicated um, and non-black and white some of this really is. And so just thank you. Yeah. Anything you want to add to that, Tim? No, I, you know, I'm also just so sorry that you were in this situation at all. And, you know, that, that professor, that's terrible and shameful. Oh, we didn't even get going on that. Yeah. Yeah. And I hope that he comes to understand that at some point. It's what's fascinating about this is like that time of that type of thought is like the infant mortality rate throughout almost all of human history was astronomically high. Like right. the amount of babies that were lost just because of how hard life is, is, you know, it was like well above 50% of the children that you, you became pregnant with, you would lose. And so in, in line with that theology, those are all hellbound individuals. Right. It's just right. insane, yeah. terrible theology. And our, and our understanding of abortion in general has been so manipulated. But the thing that I keep coming back to is like, this isn't a black and white. This is such a, your, her story is such a nuanced specific mm-hmm. story that mm-hmm. you can't legislate. Like you can't legislate her journey, the road that she has walked. And it's, I think it's barbaric to do so. Yeah. And all of this life, like as we have gone through the image series or the different things, and we talk about like the powers and principalities that are at play and understanding what any of that actually means. Like, we're just, we're all trying to survive to a certain extent in a really gray undulating, you know, it's like we're all in the sea and the waves are thrashing around and we're trying to figure out the best way to survive it. And we've found that the best way is to band together and to make sure that we can all like keep each other's heads above water sometimes like cancer. Yeah. Cancer is not an intention of God's creation, but it's a reality of the situation that we're in. So we have to figure out the best way to take care of each other and to prevent that stuff. I think this is the same. Do I think abortion was ever meant to be a part of the conversation? No, no, but the, where, where we are and the nuance of the world that we live in, we have to figure out the best way to take care of each other. Yeah. And that's going to be weird and dysfunctional sometimes, but I, the, the way that the church goes about this is evil. And now, now in, no, no, not the whole church. Cause not the whole church, but I can say tribe. Yes. This, (laughs) <laughs> Tim's daughter Mazzy is homesick today and needed um, kind of a uh, some sort of glass container she opened. Open up her, her water bottle. She couldn't get the lid off. Yeah, dude. That's Listen, that's what dads are for. Um, pickles. <laughs> I'm killing spiders is what I've, I've also realized. No, the, I, 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 I just think you're, you're absolutely right, but I would add the qualification I've been a part of communities that have loved uh, young ladies who are pregnant right. into um, a, a healthy birthing experience and an adopted, you know, adopted set of parents. Um, I've seen the I've seen the compassion and yes, the care. Yes, I have too. Um, but the but, big machine that runs. Yeah, that has I've, I've, to this point, it's yes, yes, that is run through an evangelical frame set, and that is stamped with God's yeah. approval, like yeah. God's name. Yeah, and these, like, I remember the, I remember going to those events with the with the big posters, like the bloody really? fetuses, and yeah, oh wow, they would do them at the friggin' fair, like a, a 
pro-life tent and they would hand out these little baby plastic baby fetuses that were like the size of a peanut or something and mm. and try to persuade you through the through these just disgusting pictures and these things to try to persuade like it's like how we would go to camp and give the like how i shamefully would give the gory and the glory of the cross talk right like the mm. the 49 lashes and the nails to, and like try to like manipulate people's emotions not intentionally but it was intentional to try to like kind of like make them feel bad about the the carnage that jesus went through and then give the glory talk the next one but you know he went through this but yeah um we it's it's a lot of the same like trying to shock and awe people into some kind of salvific mindset well can you i mean if you really believed that every aborted baby I, just, I don't think I'd go about it this way. Even well, even if I thought that was the case, I don't think I would. I don't know, I mean, man. We, I, all the way down to the line of people blowing up abortion clinics and shooting abortion doctors, and you know, now now legislation coming through, it's like, hey, if you have an abortion, we're going to punish you. It's all like, coercive. The rhetoric where it's like, it's you know, you should get the death penalty for killing an unborn child. It's like, what? Yeah. <laughs> what is yep. the, yep. the irony in that is is just too heavy. Yeah, I know. And and that it's done in the name of the Christian cause or movement or yeah. something is just awful. I, I mean, I'm with you, man. I think Jesus opposes any harm to any image bearer ever. Um, and I also think that, you know, in the reality of a really awful, horrible, fallen situation, there are times like, like let's say divorce where it is the lesser of evils absolutely yeah and it's, um, i mean i wonder if we'll have answers to this at some point like i now i'm even thinking about like mental health and our brains turn against us and cause us to harm ourselves right and it's difficult to understand like god's design in that well and i don't so think there's a it, damn thing of god's design in any of it well, that's what I mean. Like with all of this, like I, I, I think that the world is off center, and we're trying to find the best way to navigate this as a community. And yeah. it makes, and all of this makes more sense for why Jesus didn't come back as like a, a political revolutionary. Yeah, because, because it would just be dealing with the it symptoms. Just, yeah. It would just deal with symptoms. Absolutely. Exactly. Well, I mean, I, I, I remember I had a conversation with a dear friend about when we found out Seth had Down syndrome, and he was like, "Hey, isn't it?" Would you feel encouraged though that God entrusted a kid like this to you? And I was like, "What?" So he has this. He has this. You know, store of kids with Down syndrome. A yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, we found a, a couple of good parents here, and it was like, no, I actually just believe birth in birth defects. I just think those happen. Yeah. And can God bring something good from them? Yes. But is God yeah. doing this? I mean, it represents a view of God that is so antithetical to the work of Jesus and the person of Jesus. Yeah. And, I, and I just am like, oh my goodness, man. I don't, we know how Jesus would treat women who've had abortions because we know how he treated women yeah. in all sorts of circumstances that we're not culturally yes. approved of. So um, it, didn't, it doesn't mean that he's a fan not at all. I think Jesus stands opposed to a lot of what we accommodate ourselves to and call normal in human yes. life. But but that's precisely why his presence in the world is so crucial is because there isn't yes. the ideal operating anywhere, you know? And so anyway, well said, my friend. 
And thank you, dear emailer. Thank you, Jennifer, for um, for writing in. My goodness. Man, my adrenaline's all pumped up now. Oh, I know. You, hey, you were leaning in, man. All right. Um, uh, just a couple more before we get to Grace. I mean, this is just <laughs> such good stuff. Um, it's a big metaphor overall. Yeah, seriously. Uh, as I've been processing, this is uh, Jeremy, we'll call him. So I've been processing the issue of abortion. It was helpful to hear there are others who are like-minded. Like you, I want to see an end to abortion, but I want to live in a world where abortion is not necessary rather than simply outlawed. That's, yeah, that's kind of what, kind of what we're getting at. I wish we had a system in place that provided support for women so that abortion was not seen as their only option. Totally. Second... I like the point you made about Christians desiring political power so that, quote, they can act like Jesus once they are in power. <laughs> Man, it so doesn't work that way. For oh. some reason, it struck me differently to hear you guys talk about that. Jesus, on many occasions, had the opportunity to seize power and restore the kingdom of Israel, but never did it. Well, he did it, but he didn't do it that way. Right. He did restore the kingdom to Israel. Absolutely. But this this gentleman goes on. The idea of a cruciform kingdom makes a little more sense now. Well, I love that because that's that's the posture. I mean, Jesus Jesus grabbed hold of his kingdom when he was humiliated and tortured on the cross. Yeah, like in the Gospels, that's his exaltation. Why don't we get that? Um, because it's not the way human life works, or the way the powers have enticed us to believe. Um, is effective in the world so yeah, and i'm so guilty of it too like i i want to become powerful to fight back against the people who are trying to take power yes <laughs> yeah that's right right it's it's like when i judge the judges you've just yeah you've just joined them um and so yes i mean and i think talking about how cruciformity impacts politics because we practice the politics of cruciformity. Like we're not apolitical, we're very political. It's just the politics we practice are a politics governed by towel and basin, um, mm. you know? And so it's a completely different idea. Uh, anyway, one more paragraph from our friend here. You guys kind of hinted at this, but I'd love to hear more. The religious right has been fighting this battle for decades and it looks like they might actually get what they want. So what do you guys think is next? Much of their identity is wrapped up in culture warfare and their need to fight against something. That is so insightful, Jeremy. Yes. What do you think their next target will be? Great question. Timothy? I'm terrified of what the next target will be. Watching as they're, you know, this, because now, you know, CRT has become the new boogeyman of yep. the religious right. And um, I'm scared of what the implications of that will be overall. Mm. I don't know. I'm. I don't know. I'm not. Uh, I'm not particularly hopeful for the church. I don't like saying that out loud, but I think that I think that this win is going to um, be encouraging in all the wrong ways. Right. And I'm nervous about what the, how that's going to play out. In the same way that what the previous president enabled in, um, you know, the zealotry of that faction of people yeah uh, yeah i'm pretty nervous <laughs> dude <laughs> so true oh Which my sucks. goodness like, i hate saying that i don't want that to be how i feel i don't want that to be the case but i really like i am nervous of my tribe i am nervous <laughs> i'm embarrassed well I'm at some point at some point 
that's the tribe we grew up in. That's not our tribe anymore. Yeah. I only said that because everyone else says my tribe. I don't associate with that group of people. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, we can't turn them into enemies because we're prohibited from the Sermon on the Mount. Yes. But, but we certainly can tell an alternative story that is more faithful to the Jesus of the Bible. Yeah, and that's kind of part of the part of my pursuit of trying to understand worship and justice and this kind of stuff because I think all of that's entangled in it too. And you know, I'm just trying to figure out my place in all of this. And you're, I, and you're right. I, I my tendency is to try to combat, and that's obviously just emulation of the problem. Well, no, I mean we're not to be passive. It's just yeah, I know, but in the way that we were talking about, like yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yes. I don't know. It's a great question. Terrified of the answer. It's it's a great question. Uh, and, and we're already getting glimpse. Um, yes. So sexual minorities yes. and ethnic minorities. Yes. Um, wouldn't shock me. Immigration uh, becomes a, a hot button issue again. It, it's, it's you know, my, my, personal, my personal opinion, and I think you're so insightful, Jeremy, because... The religious right needs an enemy. Yeah. Um, and That's the abortion story. <laughs> Going yeah. back to yes. segregation and losing the segregation argument and the fight for that. And ugh. So I, I absolutely think you're right. And I think we're seeing some contenders. I mean, the CRT, people have asked me about that. And I'm like, well, so define it for me. Right. No one ever can. No. Have you read anything? No. Um, but what's instead ro- they're banning books and they're banning, you know, I, it's just, it's interesting being an, an English teacher and my wife's an English teacher. Um, you know, I think we talked with, uh, AJ Levine a little bit. Oh about man. Some of the stuff, but like the canon in English literature is predominantly written by white men. It's almost all white men. Right. Yeah. And so as you have mul- more, um, multicultural classrooms, you want to offer, literature that they can relate to that they can find themselves in and so you know we let we encourage kids to find their own books to come in and read but then you get parent teacher boards that are so angry about you know you're not letting them read to kill a mockingbird and it's like no i'm letting them read the i don't know it's just but so now so now the result is you know people are going and trying to ban specific books that talk about yeah racial reconciliation or just our racial history in general and it's just, yeah. it's gross and scary. Yeah. Yep. And we're prohibited from um, joining in the warfare. So how do yeah. we, how are, how are we people who are not passive and yet don't, as Nietzsche. That is the question. <laughs> you know, I think it was Nietzsche who said this, like, Beware when fighting the dragon, lest you become the dragon you're yes, fighting. Yes, totally. Yep. And even when you kind of uh, broke down the uh, turn the other cheek, right? Conversation. I think. I mean, I remember when you did that to the uh, the Young Life event, and everybody was like, there was like a audible gasp from people that were kind of like, oh, <laughs> yes, it is. It is. It is shocking. So yeah. let's let's keep strategizing. Like what? Because there are like there's the Benedict Benedict option Ron um, Rod Dreer Dreyer, I don't know how to pronounce his name. 
Um, there, James Davidson Hunter wrote a book called To Change the World. Like there are proposals. I, I'm just convinced, and and Gombas has very much influenced this view of mine that that I see all over in Paul. Now that I started looking for it, my job is to be committed to a local body that is a resistance movement against the tides on all sides of every issue that wage war in specific kind of culture war ways. And so um, that's where the best of my effort is to go. And yeah. so, you know, fortunately I have the opportunity to, to do that and be a part of that, but my goodness, the amount of work, it's insane. We're going, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, in your area too. <laughs> Yes, we're in a very red area, no question. I mean, I was talking just to a dear friend of mine who has lost his entire community of friends over the last three years because of masks, vaccines, CRT, like his entire community of friends. That's tough. It is tough. So uh, anyway, I don't know. I'd love to hear what you guys think. Uh, what the next target will be. I just think we're already... And, and, and the issue is, like, there, there are some things, like, yeah, I don't know, I don't think from what little I know of CRT that you buy it hook, line, and sinker, but I don't think you buy anything that anyone's saying hook, line, and sinker. I don't... Yeah. Go ahead. No, I, I think you're... I think that... Yeah, people just need to read a little bit more. The English teacher says yes. All right, speaking of reading more, Timothy, one last question, then we'll get to Grace. All my life, I heard, read your Bible, memorize scripture, etc., etc., then you'll be good, godly, and holy. But what about hurt, angst, trauma, etc., derived from the Bible itself? What about <laughs> lies people are told to believe that are truth received from bad theology? While I believe the Bible is beautiful, healing, and wonderful, I'd say about half of the reason it's hard for me to open it is because of the theological jujitsu I have to do to understand it apart from shame and performance. Am I the only one? No. No. I'll take a leap of faith there, he says. I really doubt it. Thoughts? Books to read? Ways that have helped y'all? Tim's ongoing questions regarding my question that beg more questions? P.S. Teasing a fellow Enneagram 4. I'm in seminary right now. I'm in a seminary right now that's of the dot, 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 white male predominant persuasion, and I'm feeling overwhelmed, need reinforcements. Yeah. You know what? I was, um, there's a couple buddies of mine that were trying to get together once a week and just tell each other how we're doing and pray for each other. And that's it. And it's very difficult to do it um, honestly. Hmm. And it feels so uncomfortable and so awkward. And, um, yesterday we did it and we were talking and, um, you know, everybody's kind of in a rough spot right now and a analytical spot right now. And I was like, you know, when I was teaching last year at a church in Orange County and, um, going through the Psalms, it was the first time that I realized how many, you know, that like two thirds of the Psalms are lamentations and just like, mm -hmm. where are you? Mm -hmm. Why are you not like just these, you know, it's questioning and yelling and being angry and and being sad and all this stuff in the bible it seems like god permits it and welcomes it and that was not part of my theological upbringing 
that I could question and be angry and be sad and that kind of stuff. And there's this new show on Amazon called Outer Range. Josh Brolin's like a weird mm. like um, sci-fi Western show. But he has this one scene where he, he's angry and he sits down with the family at the table and they're a Christian family and he asks if he can pray and he never does that. And he just starts yelling and he's like, there's a massive void between you and me and I need you to meet me in it. And he's just this angry prayer. Mm. And I was like, man, does that resonate with me? <laughs> Cause I've, I've had that prayer screaming in my car. Like, where are you? Mm. And I don't think that we make room for that kind of stuff. And I don't remember why I started on this it had something to do with the question. I don't know, but I don't have the question in front of me. So I start re responding and then I don't remember what it was that prompted it, but it's um, the Michael Scott quote. Sometimes I start, I start a sentence and I have no idea where it's going. Yeah, I had an idea at the beginning of it, but so, um, my friend, Jeremy, number two, um, a couple of thoughts. First of all, seminary is a tough place to be. Yeah. And, um, Please know that struggles with theology in the Bible are super normal for being in the middle of seminary. Um, secondly, and and I don't know, man, I don't know how long you've listened to us. Or no, he says, long-time listener, first-time emailer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's hashtag Seth in 2048 for president. There you go. Oh, it was about like bad theology and angst and hurt and trauma from the Bible itself and stuff like that. And yeah, that's what I was responding to. Just, just to tie all back. I'm not just, I'm not just a balloon that's floating out in the, even in if the you wind. were Timothy, we would love you, <laughs> but no, I mean that, that people them in the Bible itself are people reacting to the God of the Bible yeah, in ways that aren't super pretty. And there's room for that. I think is the, what I was trying to get at. Is yes, I, man. I, what a rad, what a what a rad place to do that in seminary, to be able to just thrash around and be like, I want to really like, I'm here so I can teach people about this entity, this deity, yeah, and this way of living, and that should be the place where you could thrash the hardest. It should just be a mosh pit. Yes, theological mosh pit. Sorry. No, no, move dude. Move along. No, that was great. That was a great point. It was worth fighting for. I think I think I think one of one of the things um, I would say is, and I totally man, th this idea that when you read the Bible, um, it's it's tough to understand it apart from performance and shame. That resonates mm. with me because yes. you know the filter I got was my role in the world is to be good. Mm -hmm. The Bible tells me what is good and helps me be good. Mm -hmm. And it exposes all that is not good. And that's yep. the role of the Bible. That was the period at the end of the sentence. Yes. Yes. And, um, and so it has been a long unwinding, uh, particularly as someone who teaches this publicly from, in, and I'm very much tied to performing <laughs> uh, when we're talking about it. So I could totally resonate with you. And I would say um, the, the thing, the only, only thing I can think to tell you is to find one or two people who are like you and, um, and wrestle with it there. In other words, yeah. I don't think there's a book that's going to solve this for you. I mean, if you want interesting takes on the Bible, 
we did a Bible series, the the Bible Project. You know, I think Tim Mackey's just yeah. an incredible communicator about some of this stuff. <laughs> but I, I think what's at issue more deeply is how are, how is the Bible used in spiritual formation, right? And and to this point, it's been a very shaming, performative sort of exercise. How do you relearn that? Um, yeah. I don't. I'm not opposed to just saying well then spend some time away from it and and immerse yeah. yourself in other pictures of of the good and the good and gracious god i'm not opposed at all to as you're in the middle of seminary like not opening a bible because you've been forced to read it as sort of a textbook as an object of study yeah. i think that's great um my healing from performance and shame when it comes to not just Bible, but prayer, like evangelism, like all the things yeah. has only come in community. And sometimes that's yeah. community with a therapist, a spiritual director, and a band of brothers and sisters yeah. that, that they just help me unwind um, all of the stuff. And so uh, the one other thing I might add, Tim, and let me know what you think of this. I, I would want to say, is it the Bible that's hurt you or how it's been used. So, so people, for instance, will say, I've been hurt by the church. And I want to say, I totally get that. I know what you mean. But it had to be people in the church, right, that hurt you? Um, and, and if we can name the people who have used the Bible wrongly, um, does that allow us a bit of space to engage the Bible in a different way? rather than associating everything that they said with the Bible itself. And I don't even know if that's a, a valid point or not, but it just struck me as I was hearing the question like, well, I don't know if the Bible hurt you. Maybe right. the filter that, that has, you've inherited through which you read the Bible hurt you. The Bible is just this really weird, odd book of all sorts of goodness and beauty and ugliness and tragedy. And, uh, you know, I, I can't make heads or tails of the thing until I come into a community of faith. Um, and that community of faith disciples me to understand that the Bible isn't quite what I thought the Bible was. And the Bible itself gives all sorts of permission to engage in it in non-shameful, non-performative ways. Yeah. Um, but I couldn't get to that place until I was around people who verbally said to me, it's normal. It's okay. It's encouraged that you're asking all the, these questions and wrestling yeah. with all of these issues. It would be it, it would be of interest to have a um, to have a therapist on and to ask a question ah. just like that. Okay, say, let me hey. save the question. Um. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing too is like, I think of, you know, we joked last episode about the um, armor of God that you could buy at the Christian bookstores as a kid yeah. and how yeah. much emphasis was on the sword of truth, like the Bible being a weapon, a sword to use to like, yeah, you know, yep. I mean, that's what a sword is built for. Yep. Um, and, and then yep. to think about, you know, never trust someone, never trust anyone that doesn't walk with a limp and this idea of wrestling with God and, and busting your hip in the process of that. And, uh, it's so antithetical to this, you know, guy standing with a sword, just chopping people apart that are against what the word of God says. Right. You know, it's, so it's, I think that, you know, you look at it that way and it's like, yeah, that is really a harmful 
it has been used as a harmful tool by people and it would be it'd be so fascinating within a seminary to do exactly what you just said and try to find like a mm. community of people to like like a dead poet society that's like yes this group of people that are wrestling with the hard truths of everything together in their room at night or whatever or, or yeah. at the secret cave reading poetry together like reading the psalms together in a cave and wrestling through what it means to be at the feet of God and Jesus within you know, I don't want to say the lion's den of seminary, but something to that effect of like, it, yeah, it can be in the middle of it and, and kind of like really finding a group of people to hunker down with. I don't know if there's those people are there or not, but I agree. Like all good truth that I have found in my life has come in community, not in, um, I don't, it, that's where, that's where I found it yep. has been with, with other people. Yep. Wrestling. All right. I got, I'm going to do 20 minutes of grace. All right. <laughs> Even though I spent hours prepping this, those are great questions, though. Good lord, Heavy I know stuff, that's why. Good stuff. Yeah, that's why I'm like, ugh. I just I don't want to just say, hey, thanks for your question. I mean, these are really, really good. It's the flesh and, and blood of all this podcast. Totally, man. So I've got nine pages of notes, hours of preparation, and twenty minutes to get into it. Well, we'll have a grace part two. Maybe. Um, so two books that you must, must read. Um, these are high level. Well, one of them isn't super high level. It's, it's called um, Misreading the Bible with Western Eyes. Hmm. Um, nope. Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes. There it is. And... Um, Richards and O'Brien are the two um, authors, and they have a section about grace and faith that I'll, I'll reference here at the end of the episode. But there was a magisterial book uh, that was released in 2015 uh, by John Barclay, and um, I think it was called Paul and the Gift. And then he wrote a popular version of that called Paul and the Power of Grace. And this book, oh my goodness, um, I I just can't even do him justice. But it is a thick, hard, even his popular version is a hard read. So <laughs> I'll put I'll put both of those in the show notes as links. Well, let me just say, what he does is um, for me intellectually revolutionary. Um, mm. Because, so there's, there's several sections to his kind of argument that I'm going to go over. And I'm going to do a lot of telling, not showing. Because, I mean, if, if you want more, like, read the book. Grace, that charis and all the words like it, in religious circles, kind of refers to God's favor, gift, or benefaction. But was widely used in the in the Roman world as just sort of any favor or any disposition towards kindness. Um, it can be a literal gift, or it just could be an attitude of benevolence. All right, so it encompasses not just a specific gift, but an, a posture towards somebody. Um, and in and, and and we have to get this into our heads to understand grace in the ancient world generosity to others was the best form of insurance because if um if you were ever in trouble 
um, it would be because you had been kind to others that they would come and help when you're in your time of trouble. And, um, and so people who were stingy or uncooperative would find themselves very much alone <laughs> when illness or calamity would strike. But people who'd been really generous to other people would find lots of help coming their way. So generosity was a, a way of forming social bonds with each other. It wasn't this abstract, like, hey, I'm going to donate to a cause. It was not kind of far away in some third world. Generosity was the favors you did for people. And a part of the gift giving was the expectation that, that should you ever need help, they would help when the time came. And so there was a great deal of emphasis because it created social bonds, giving created social bonds. There was a great deal of emphasis on finding worthy recipients for your gift in the ancient world because you were now associated with them. And so to avoid like disappointment or embarrassment, um, you would give gifts to people who could repay or who would somehow further your reputation. Hmm. Um, you would be, you would look for worthy, worthy people to receive your gifts. Why? Because gifts tied people together and formed social bonds. Um, and worth could be measured in a lot of different ways. Like when we think of worth, we think of net worth. But back then, worth could be measured along um, social status lines, gender lines, age, ethnicity, ancestry, education, morality. You could all be worthy or unworthy along any of those axes. And so if, if you would give gifts to people who were um, not worthy, that would be a, that would way, a, be a way of degrading your social honor. Um, that makes sense. Does that make sense? That's, that's yeah. super important. Now, that was the ancient understanding of gift giving. Gift giving was reciprocal. Uh, it's very much godfathery. Like I'll give you this favor, but you know when I ask yeah. I'll, and I need a favor <laughs> in return. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. It, that was just the way it worked. It was it was all social bonding. The American understanding of grace is is far different. For us, grace usually means free, and free in two senses: one that it's not merited, it's not earned. And then secondly, that there's no expectation of, of strings attached or repayment or anything like that. There's no expectation of reciprocity, right? We don't trust gifts if they're given with strings attached. If they're given with strings attached, yeah. they're not gifts. They're loans or something, right? right? Yeah. <clears throat> so, so the American way of understanding gift giving is far different from how the ancients understood it. All right. Um, the ancients um, understood the, the reciprocity of gift and giver and receiver differently than we do. So an analogy would be like Santa Claus. Santa Claus gives gifts, but doesn't expect repayment or any favors in return. Right. And so, hmm. so Santa Claus is pure gift given to the worthy, right? Yeah. Those who are nice, but not given... Um, with expectation of return. Yeah. Okay. Paul and Jesus understand grace exactly the opposite of that. Instead of Santa giving to the worthy, the Christ gift is given to the unworthy. 
And instead of the Santa gift having no expectation of loyalty in return, there is an expectation of loyalty that comes with biblical grace. <laughs> so Jesus is the anti-Santa. I mean, let's just be honest. You know, <laughs> let's just funny. say it. Let's just say it the way that it is. Hey, just one more reason to promote Halloween. <laughs> we could say Santa is anti-Christ and that Jesus is anti clause Oh, that's got some multi-layers to it. Come on, come on. Now, now, this isn't the way Americans understand grace at all. And so the natural pushback begins with, well, what are you talking about? Like expectation of repayment or return or a gift in exchange. That doesn't sound like God at all. Yeah. And so what... Barclay does is he introduces six different dimensions of grace and how grace is understood or can be understood. And he shows how a lot of the disagreements we have about grace stem from understanding grace in its different dimensions differently. And so this is where the book gets sticky and a bit complicated and I'll do my best. But the idea he calls them perfections. You can you can see you can perfect the idea of grace in six different ways, and um, Americans perfect it in one way, and the Bible perfects it in a different way. So the Americans perfect it like Santa. Um, the Bible perfects it as um, as gifts to the unworthy, where there is an expectation that it does something. All right, so uh here we go. Let me just plow <laughs> through these. All right. And, and, you know, whatever. So six different perfections of grace. The first one, he says, it's called superabundance. We can talk about grace when a gift is given in large scale or in lavish terms or for an ongoing duration. Right. So superabundance measures how great the gift is. Is it a large gift? Is it a sustained gift? Is it a significant gift? Okay? That's superabundance. It's how big and how long is the gift. All right? Another way to perfect grace is something he calls singularity. And, and here the focus is not on the gift, but the giver. We can think of gifts given by somebody whose sole orientation towards us is giver. So Santa, his sole orientation towards us is giver, right? Um, singularity focuses on the goodness of the giver and their orientation towards you. So in singularity, the only orientation someone has towards me is giver of gifts. It's not judge. It's not police. It's not evaluator. It's simply giver. It's simply... Uh, um, uh, benevolent. Uh, it's simply somebody who has oriented me in such a way that they they want to give gifts, and that's their only posture towards me. Does that make sense? Yeah, I know, I know. The third perfection is priority. It's the timing of the gift. Um, if the gift was given in exchange for another gift, then it's not perfected in terms of priority. Priority. If it's if grace is perfected in terms of priority. It's given before any initiative is taken by the recipient. Right. Right. So in a sense, it's like while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That's that 
before anything happened to make you worthy of the gift, right. it was given. Yeah. Um, it, it is, if it were obligated by a previous gift, this wouldn't be the perfection of priority. Priority gift is given before it's asked for, before uh, any other gift is given. Does that make sense? Yeah. All right. Um, so you have superabundance, singularity, priority. I know this is awful. This is awful. This is like but, the guy's email is like, why does it take PhDs to understand saved? Yep. yep. <laughs> so here's the fourth one. It's called incongruity. And this perfection of grace maximizes the difference in worth or social status between the giver and uh, the receiver or the gift and the receiver. So it's like when someone very rich gives to someone very poor. That yeah. mismatch between rich and poor is incongruity. It's, um, it's the, 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 the gift is given without recognizing the worth or unworth of the recipient. So ancient mm -hmm. gifts were congruous, right? You gave gifts to worthy recipients. This right. is incongruous where you give gifts to people who aren't worthy recipients of the gifts that you're given. Make sense? Yep. And then number five, <laughs> he calls it efficacy. The gift uh, achieves something. Um, the gift is given. So like, so like the reformed crowd will talk about irresistible grace. Like mm. once grace is given to you, it can't help but do something to you. And then the last one is called non-circularity. A circular gift is a gift that expects some return or reciprocity. A non-circular gift is a gift that doesn't. All right. Now, Santa, right, has a grace that's like, um, it's congruous. He gives to worthy people. It's non-circular in the sense that he doesn't expect a return. It's singular in the sense that that his or, his orientation towards us is giving gifts, right? Right. Okay. So that's so so. I know. I know. This is awful. He spends he spends pages on this. It's absolutely brilliant. But you can see how different theological systems understand grace in different ways. Totally. And and why the whole grace and works conversation gets really messed up. Because if you define grace as something that expects no reciprocity, then works are contradicting that grace. But if you mm -hmm. understand grace as something that does expect a return, then there's no inconsistency between grace and faith and works. Make sense? Yes. So his big argument is that biblical grace is incongruous, right? Um, and it's um, it's given without any outlining of the worth of the recipients, right? The mismatch between the gift and the receiver couldn't be bigger. Yeah, and Paul, anti clause. Yes, exactly right. But <laughs> unlike American <clears throat> understandings of grace, biblical grace is circular. There is reciprocity here, and that does not cancel out the unmerited part. And it's how we reconcile Paul's teaching that we're judged by our works and that mm. we're justified by faith alone. Yeah. So it's super important. Now, let me give an example of how this works before we go on to its implications. All right. Yeah. Um, 
grace, the word charis, and the word faith, pistis, that we met a couple episodes ago. One of the things we said about pistis is it means enacted loyalty. Um, it, it shows itself in action. Well, um, a couple of scholars argue that pistis and charis, grace and faith, were used to define the patron-client relationship of the Roman world. So, in the Roman world, and we've talked about this before, so forgive the repetition, in the Roman world, there was an amazing bureaucracy. Suppose you're a farmer who lives outside of Rome, you've just received notice that there's a tax on the particular crop that you, uh, that you supply, and, um, and you want to fight against this extra tax on it, uh, because it'll it'll you know drive away people from from buying your product as opposed to yeah. you know something else. Well, the judicial system, the economic system, I mean, all of that is way too complex for you, a simple farmer, to navigate. So what you would do is you would begin to look for a patron. A patron was somebody who uh, was well connected. He was uh, or she was socially higher up. Uh, they knew how the system worked and how to grease the wheel so that you would be taken care of, all right? Whatever favor they did for you was called charis or grace. It was from a social superior to a social inferior or economic inferior, whatever. Yeah. Um, but given from greater to lesser. Now, the expected form of repayment in that relationship was something called faith or pistis which was which meant loyalty or allegiance or honor in other words let's say i do some I, uh, uh, let's say you're the patron i'm the farmer i come to you you say you bet man i'm gonna take care of this for you um and uh and don't worry i'll, I'll handle it not a problem and then six months from now in the roman elections you're gonna run for office yeah. and you collect all of the people who owe you. Yeah. And the expectation is the way you repay that is in loyalty. So that you yeah. go work the polls, you go knock door to door, you go tell people about the favor that was shown to you by... They don't expect repayment in material terms because they're rich. They don't need more material. What they want is honor. Yeah. Or loyalty, right? And so the picture that Paul paints is a picture uh, that says, according to Barclay, um, that grace is a gift given without, without any regard of merit, right? Paul even says it's given to the ungodly, which you could not get more unmerited than that, <laughs> yeah. right? So it's incongruous. It's the, 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 the mismatch between the gift and the recipient couldn't be bigger. But the gift um, carries with it expectation. And, and why? Because, according to um, Barclay, and, and I, I think this plays out in the New Testament, the Christ gift is transformative. It transforms people and opens up social possibilities that weren't true before. And... Um, and so, so the idea is that grace turns out to be three, kind of three things um, using his little typology. The first one is it's incongruous. 
um, which is how you know we understand it. God gave this gift while we were sinners. Um, it's also uh, given um, in in a way that has expectations attached to it. Um, now, these expectations aren't necessary for salvation, but they're the evidence that salvation has actually taken place, right? Um, like, uh, there's no way you could say wedding vows and not have that change you and actually be married. Yeah. Like, the nature of the act itself changes you. So the nature of the Christ gift, if it's truly received, changes you. There, There is no other way that it can go. Um. And I know I'm rushing through this, but the last thing that he says that is super interesting is that grace um, is also a social dynamic that that opens up possibilities of communities who gather without regarding the previous hierarchies of worth. So mm-hmm. if the gift is given without stipulation and judgment of worth, then the community formed by the gift is also a community formed of people who are enacted, who display enacted loyalty to Jesus, but part of that enacted loyalty is that they no longer play by the mapping of worth in today's society because all the maps of worth have been eradicated by the gift that is Christ because the gift of Christ was given without regards to worth. And so the coolest part of his book is when he gets into all of the ways that grace how do we remap communities without without if you throw systems of worth out the window? Now you look puzzled, and I know that's a lot. No, I'm just processing all of it. I'm thinking about it in terms of the Roman example that you gave, um, just the way that the example of Christ, how it builds upon that. Because my immediate thought was like, well, if I am the Roman patron who is bailing someone out or whatever, and I have this expected loyalty, is there a threat if the loyalty is not met from the farmer? You know what no. I mean? Like if, yeah. And then with the Jesus one, um, Jesus sits as King already. So in the, like the elected office position, it's just, the grace is a little bit different. Oh, absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, so that's what I was, I was just, I was tumbling through all those things yep, as you're yep, going. Yep. So grace and faith um, are words that were common in the Roman Empire. They weren't religious words. They just described a social bond yeah. that was reciprocal. And, um, and so we shouldn't be afraid of this. No, I don't think there's threat there, um, right. but there was expectation. So, I mean, I mean, think about how do you reconcile the fact that at the one hand, Jesus is hanging around all of the marginalized people that he can get his hands on, right? All the unworthy recipients of his blessing, healing, the deliverance, right? I mean, the, none of them are worthy for this yeah. according to the, the, the understood systems of worthiness that existed in Jesus's culture. But at the same time, Jesus is always saying things like, listen, <laughs> if you're going to be my disciple, you have to take up your cross and follow me, right? right. If you're going to be my disciple, you have to hate your mother and father. If you're going to be my disciple, you have to X, Y, and Z. Now, how do both of those exist? Well, it's simple. Jesus comes to transform us. And so 
the, the, the picture that we get in Paul's use of grace and faith is a picture where a gift is given without regard to worth, ancestry, gender, I mean, education, morality, none of that. None of that is factored in. But the gift is given knowing that the gift transforms. The gift itself transforms the recipients of it. Yeah. And, and, and there are expectations of loyalty that flow naturally from a reception, a reception of such a great gift. Totally. So it's another way in which Paul is uh, using common terminology and understandings of the time and then building upon them in a different... Yes, yeah as so done, he flips as it. jesus did also yeah yeah right so it so for them patronage was giving gifts to worthy recipients for paul yeah he's continually struck by how unworthy the recipients right. are of the christ gift but to we use Barclays have language. in some ways built an understanding of that transaction that there is threat yes well we've turned been, it much of the evangelical model has been kind of like so that's kind of interesting because it's it's like paul and Jesus first, obviously, and then Paul tries to take that understanding and build upon it and flip it. And then yes. we've kind of taken all that and then kind of reconstructed it back to the, the more um, transactional understanding that those words held in the first place. Yes. So, kind of so one, so Barkley, totally tragic. Oh my goodness. <laughs> because, I mean, for me, grace just meant I didn't have to do anything. Right. And that's but not, then there's that a misunderstanding or that gray area where you're like, you know, like when people say like, I don't know, I, I, I prayed the prayer, but I don't know if I like, I didn't feel a physical entity enter my heart right. when I die. Am I actually going to go to heaven or am I actually going to go to hell? Cause there was, I didn't get a receipt, you know, like yep. <laughs> there was no transactional receipt that says, yeah. So in some ways it's kind of the same way where it's like, we have rebuilt a two dimensional version of this. Yes. And yes. we lose you lose so much color and frequency when you when you break it to a from three to two. Four Barclay Barclay is a quote here. He says, um, Grace is given freely in the sense that it is given without prior conditions and without regard to worth or capacity. But that does not mean it comes with no expectations of return. The Christ gift carries strong expectations because it is transformative. It remolds and remakes the self and recreates the community of believers. The social effects of this divine gift in human gift practices, therefore, necessarily complement or are, are, are excuse me. The social effects of this divine gift in human relationships are a necessary component of grace. Yeah, I get that. That makes sense. Yes. They're not, the effects are not instrumental in winning some additional gift of grace, but they right. are the inevitable and proper working out of grace in human life. It's just really hard for us to remove the subcontext of debt. Yes, exactly. This. And so, and so he, raises, he raises such an interesting point. He says, you know, most of the, especially in the work or in the writings about Jesus, most of the language of salvation is about reversal. Incon incongruity, you know, it's about flipping upside down things. The insiders turn out to be the outsiders and the outsiders turn right. out to be the insiders. And the first, man, they turn out to be last and the least, they turn out to be greatest. And, and all of that's incongruity. Yeah, yeah. And so Paul uses grace to pick up on that. 
But there is, yeah. but, but grace, just like faith, this is why both of these concepts go together. Grace and faith go together because they're, they embody a response, a loyal response to the king. Right? It's not just praying a prayer in your heart and accepting Jesus in your heart. There is something that you actually that actually flows out of you. And that's how it is in every other human relationship. Why that's are we shocked? Yeah. That's the yes. key distinction is that you're not enacting loyalty because of a of a debt or because it's expected no. necessarily. It's because of a transformation from the gift itself. Yes, because you've already got the gift. Yeah. That's no, the point. That's a, it's it's the key distinction, it's, yeah. It's growing into what's already true of you, like we've talked about before. Yeah. So we rushed, ladies and gentlemen, we totally rushed through this. But um, if we want to come back, go ahead and email some questions. But I'll try to get to works because once we get all of these concepts out on the table, you can see how they work together. Uh, if you understand grace in this way, works aren't a threat. But Paul does condemn something he calls the works of the law. So what is, what is that and what does he mean by that? We'll get to that next episode. You guys rock. See you later. Goodbye. Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening to this conversation. Voxology is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that is supported by listeners just like yourself. If you'd like to partner with us, you can do so at Patreon dot com backslash voxology you can also join the community and hang out and chat with us on the socials facebook.com backslash voxology podcast and on instagram at voxology podcast thank you thank you thank you for walking the long road with us